What's the time? It's time to get ill. What's the time? It's time to get ill. So what's the time? It's time to get ill. Now what's the time? It's time to get ill. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, this is episode 84, somewhere around there, something like that, 83, 84. I can never remember which which specific episode it is. But uh, but uh, that means we are not really a new podcast anymore. But uh, for those of you out there who are just tuning in for the first time, first-time listeners, uh, basically... Uh, what this podcast is about is I invite uh, an author on to discuss a book of theirs that's been newly published or recently published, uh, something we think uh, you guys out there would like to hear a uh, discussion about, a conversation about, and then hopefully at the end of the podcast or uh, you know even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, uh, you go ahead and uh, pick up a copy for yourself and uh, give it a read. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. And also by sharing with your friends, as that's the best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Professor Richard Overy. And Professor Overy is Professor of History at the University of Exeter. And one of Britain's most distinguished historians and an internationally renowned scholar of the Second World War. He is the recipient of the Hessel Tilton Prize, the Wilson History Prize, the Samuel Elliott Morrison Prize, and is a fellow of the British Academy and the Royal Historical Society. His works include The Air War, 1939 to 1945, Russia's War, Blood Upon the Snow, uh, The Dictators, Hitler's Germany and Stalin's Russia, 1939, Countdown to War, The Morbid Age, Britain Between the Wars, and The Bombers and the Bombed, Allied Air War over Europe, 1940-1945. And lastly, he is the author of Blood and Ruins, The Last Imperial War, 1931-1945, which was published by Viking in April and is the book we will be discussing today. So, Professor Overy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and uh, discussing the book with me. I appreciate it. Thank you. So, uh, what made you want to write this book? What was the, the genesis of it? This seems... Uh, um, I saw one reviewer called it a, <laughs> uh, called it your magnum opus, and it's certainly a uh, uh, it's a tremendous book. Um, it's yeah, with the end notes, it's over a thousand pages. It's very uh, um, incredibly informative and and, uh, and dense and dense in a good way. Um, uh, so what? Uh, it's almost like. Do you view this as like a culmination of uh, of your uh, of your work uh, so far? Uh, was everything sort of leading up to this book, or um, or how do you feel? What was yeah? Just what was the genesis of this book? Well, in some sense, it's a culmination because I've been working on the Second World War in one capacity or another for 30, 40 years. Um, but what really drove me to write the book the way I have? Mm-hmm. is that there are a great many very good narrative history of the Second World War out there, um, a lot of them. And I wanted to frame the war differently, to find a way of doing the history of the Second World War, which is not the way everybody else had done it, um, and to make people think anew about the conflict. Um, and that's partly you know, evidence in the title, where I date it from 1931 to 1945, instead of 39 to 45. Um, and I wanted also to 
have the chance to explore big questions about the war, uh, which are in the thematic chapters of the book, um, which don't often get asked when you're just doing a straightforward military narrative. Um, and, and so the book really is, is aiming to do several things, I think. It is to broaden our understanding of the war, but it's also to get us to think about the war in a different way. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, it, like, as I mentioned before, it's a, it's a very, uh, it's a big book. Like I said, it's over a thousand pages with the end notes, about 850 pages of, of uh, actual text. Uh, what was your process for, for writing it? How, how, how long did it take you to, to uh, churn this one out? Well, it took me longer than I normally take, I have to say. It took me five <laughs> or six years. Wow. But that's partly because I changed my mind about the book. After I'd started off thinking I would do predominantly a, a lengthy narrative, but then I realized that, you know, that didn't work. I wasn't going to be able to explore the things I wanted to explore. Mm. And so about a third of the way through the process, I, I, I chucked a lot of stuff away and started again. Um, so it has taken me longer than, than, uh, than normal, I have to say. Um, but some people might think a book of a thousand pages in five years is not too bad. No, no, I was going to say, uh, uh, I'm curious, do you have like a, I'm always curious when I talk to the historians about how they uh, go about uh, writing uh, books of this size. Uh, do you have a, like a routine uh, you sat down every day a certain sort of uh, did you have a word count in your head like I'm gonna get you know 2,000 words done today or uh, is it that sort of do you have a um, you know did you have like a like I said a routine or like a, a habitual I do have a routine with, with all the books I write um, and uh, you know if, if it's possible I aim to once I've done the research I aim to write quite quickly mm-hmm. um, but uh, over the, the period of the pandemic, uh, routine was difficult to maintain. I mean, right. it was, you had to really, I had to really focus actually to make sure I could, I could keep going and get the book done in the, you know, the schedule that publishers wanted. Uh, and that really meant, you know, working all the time that I could, uh, thinking about it all the time. Mm. Um, but, you know, in the end, to write a book of this length, you do need to be very focused. You need to be... Um, you know, quite ruthless, perhaps, in the way in which you, you know, approach your time. Yeah. So that, you know, I haven't read a novel or watched a video um, for quite a long time <laughs> by writing the book. Um, and I'm now stuck into another book. So, uh, yeah, same problem. So is uh, writing like a, was it like a full, like a full time day uh, for you? I mean, because I know some people have, they just, uh, you know, they basically set out like a couple hours, two or three hour chunk of their day and, Whatever they get done in those two and three hours, that's you know that's what they get done, and you know that's it. And uh, they don't feel that they're um, that they write as well, uh, or mm. that their, their brain sort of works <laughs> at the no, same I write freshness. All, I write you know. all day. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I often find that if I write all day, the stuff at the end is better than the stuff at the beginning. Mm. Oh, interesting. Okay. All right. Um, so let's get uh, uh, outside of process and. Uh, into the book itself, and um, first question I want to ask you: There's, uh, you write basically there are four uh, main assumptions that your your new history of the war rests on. Um, so I'll read this off, and I don't know if you want to take them one by one or uh, as a whole. Uh, but basically, that the uh, the conventional chronology of the war 
uh, basically, you know, from what we're taught, that it began in September 1939 with the invasion of Poland to, you know, 1945 when Japan surrenders. That is no longer a useful chronology. And that the, uh, number two, that the war should be understood as a uh, global event, uh, I mean, rather, uh, rather than one that's confined to the defeat of Germany and Italy with the, the Pacific War against Japan as sort of a sideshow to that main event. Uh, three, that the conflict needs to be defined as a number of different kinds of war. And then four, that all three of these factors, chronology, area, and definition, uh, derive from your argument that the long Second World War was the last imperial war. Yeah, I mean, the chronology thing really links with the argument about the you know the imperial war mm-hmm. um, because I've dated it from 1931 uh, precisely because that's when Japan embarks on the effort to build a new territorial empire in Asia mm-hmm. um, and 1945 is actually not a very good end date either and the last chapter of the book takes the story up to the 1950s and 60s because one of the consequences of the war is not just the defeat of Japanese Italian and German imperialism, but it's the crisis of imperialism in general. By the 1960s, the big global empires, Britain and France in particular, of course, are more or less wound up. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a 20-30 year chunk in which you know, you're looking at efforts to build new empires, the defeat of those efforts, and then the collapse of uh, old-fashioned colonial imperialism in general. Um, that means it has to be a global war. And one of the things I've tried to do in the book, I think, is to make sure that the, what's going on in Asia and the Pacific is up there with what's going on in Europe. And I, I spent a lot of time in the book talking about the war in China in particular, mm-hmm. which often gets marginalized almost completely in, in general history of the Second World War. Um, quite a bit of time talking about Southeast Asia and about India. Um, because it is a global war. It's a war which involves sort of every area of the world. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, from the Aleutian Islands to the Falkland Islands. And uh, uh, and you can't really understand the dimensions of the war without putting it into that broader global context. There's not room, of course, even in a book of this length, to do justice to everything. Um, there's not a lot, for example, about Latin America. But um, what I've tried to do, I think, is to is to make people see this as a as a genuinely global conflict, all the areas of conflict interconnected. Um, the third point, really, about different kinds of war uh, is that, that, that there are different kinds of war being fought, often simultaneously. There's interstate war, the one we're familiar with, Germany against the Soviet Union, Japan against the United States. Um, but then there are what I've called civilian wars. Uh, these are wars of civil defense which mobilized millions of civilians in the defense of their cities against bombing. Um, There are wars of resistance, um, which you find in China or in Europe or in um, Malaya. Um, And there are civil wars in Ukraine, in Greece, in Italy, uh, which pit uh, civilians against each other, even during the period of occupation. Mm. So seeing the, the war in that broader sense makes it, both a much more complicated story, but what it also does, I think, is that it brings civilians in, because this is a war that involves civilians to a very large extent, unlike the First World War. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I think you, you know, it's a war in which you have to see soldiers and civilians both playing their part. The fourth question about imperialism is really what shapes the book. Because what I'm arguing is that, that after two or three hundred years of European expansion, global expansion, the establishment of colonial empires and so on, the idea that somehow empire defines a great power, it has to have an empire, um, lived on into the early 20th century. And the Germans and the Japanese and the Italians latched onto this idea but they were losers in a great many respects. And in the 1920s and 30s, with the collapse of the world economy, in all three countries, you've got nationalist circles who said, well, you know, what we need is an empire. You know, that's what the British and the French have got. The Americans have got the equivalent of it across the whole continental United States. We need an empire. If we have an empire, we'll A, be a great power, and B, we'll solve our economic problems. And that's really you know, how I've shaped the book. That's what it's about. The 1930s is about building up these empires. The 1940s, uh, the Second World War, is about destroying those empires. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think the, the imperial project uh, would have gone on uh, longer into the future without the sort of the cataclysm of the Second World War? Do you think, uh, you know, say, for example, do you think uh, Britain hangs on to India for longer than, you know, 1948? Or uh, do you think uh, the, the progress of dismantling the empires, do you think that takes a longer amount of time if the Second World War doesn't happen? Well, it's a good question. I mean, clearly, you know, I think the days of empire were numbered anyway. Yeah. Um, and in both Britain and France and the Netherlands and so on, I think there was an understanding that there was a, a limit to how long you could push the idea of territorial empire. Uh, but there's no doubt the Second World War accelerated that process quite dramatically. What the Second World War did was really to bankrupt what remaining kind of moral claim the European powers had to, uh, to run an empire. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, without the Second World War, well, perhaps Empire might have lingered on to the sixties or seventies, but I think it was it was doomed to collapse eventually. Yeah, and the uh, the Japanese were uh, did more to bring about the uh, fall of the imperial system than than Germany certainly did. Yeah, the Jap- I mean, what Japan does in Southeast Asia, the threat to India and Australia and so on, uh, the seizure of uh, a, a, a huge amount of colonial territory. Um, yeah, it really is the death knell for the old-fashioned form of empire, because the people who have been occupied by the Japanese don't particularly want the colonial powers back again when Japan has been defeated, and that produces uh, an extraordinarily violent response mm-hmm. by the old imperial powers, um, ending, of course, with the expulsion of the French from Vietnam, uh, with the Dutch from Indonesia, the British hang on, but they lose India, Sri Lanka, and Burma. Um, so this, you know, the, it is in Asia uh, that the, the crisis of the old empires is confronted uh, head-on mm. or during and after the Second World War. Yeah. Uh, so still on that imperial focus, um, talk about the the origins of the war, and you write that it's the, it's through the prism of the final dynastic drive to empire. <clears throat> excuse me. By the developing industrial powers, so you know Germany and Japan, Italy, uh, to divide up or dominate those parts of the globe uh, that are still outside the web of the existing colonial empires, that the the long-term origins of the Second World War can be understood. 
Yeah, I mean, you can go right back to to the uh, late 19th century, um, because Germany, Italy, and Japan were late starters, of course. I mean, they they, they saw them. Most of the world that could be colonized already was colonized. Um, and Japan pushes out into the Pacific, has ambitions in Korea and China. The Germans uh, have their colonies, but they're also keeping an eye to the east, wondering whether there's room for empire there. Uh, the Italians don't really have much of an empire, uh, except in a little bit in the Horn of Africa. So they're beginning to think, well, maybe North Africa, Mediterranean is an area where we can get an empire too. Um, so it's no accident that these are the three states that become the Axis powers in the 1930s, 1940s. These are the three powers that have thought about the advantages of empire and the fact that they don't really have have an effective one um, that pushes them all the way along to the 1920s and 1930s, the idea that if only they had an empire, things would be better. Yeah. And uh, how did the, the concepts of uh, race and space how did that come to dominate the imperialism of the of the 30s and the early 40s? Well, that goes back again to the 19th century, the late 19th century. The European view was that Europeans were civilized and much of the rest of the world wasn't, um, and that they would export to other races uh, the fruits of that civilization. But they made it absolutely clear that the European races were superior. Um, mm. and that they were destined to be rulers. The Japanese developed very much the same sort of idea, in fact, in the late 19th century for Asia too. It began to think that there was a Japanese destiny in Asia. Japan, the Japanese were the you know, superior race in the context of East Asia. Um, and those views were still alive and well in the 1920s and 1930s, also in Britain and France, of course, mm. um, the idea that the, the white races were destined to rule over races that were destined to be subjects. Yeah, but there was, um, you sort of touched on, there was nothing specifically uh, Nazi or National Socialist about the concept of, of Lebensraum or living space. That was not something unique to uh, to Hitler in the Third Reich. No, no, I mean, you know, he gave it, you know, Hitler gave it a, a name which he borrowed from, um, from earlier German writers. Um, but the idea that, that you know, the countries needed living space, they needed places where they could send a population, where they could uh, establish markets, where they could find resources, yeah, I mean, goes back as, as long as the uh, development of imperialism in the 19th century. Um, the problem was, I think, that, that uh, because Hitler talked about Lebensraum, and because Hitler was regarded as the most dangerous of the Axis powers, uh, the, the idea lodged in the mind of the West, and it's still there, really, mm -hmm. that somehow Lebensraum is a Nazi invention, that only the Germans wanted territorial empire. That, of course, is nonsense, because the British and French, you know, uh, had a territorial ter territorial empire that spread over more than a third of the globe. Yeah. So, <clears throat> um, the origins of the war, uh, the factors that are usually emphasized when... Uh, people uh, think about or analyze the origins of the war. So, you know, the uh, uh, the ideological conflicts, uh, the arms races, the, the diplomatic crises. Uh, you write that these were uh, these were the effects of this new wave of empire building. These were not the not the causes, uh, uh, you know, 
of that. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I think that may be a rather controversial claim, but but to my mind, what what really uh, um, destroys the established geopolitical order in the 1930s is is this desire to establish territorial empire, not just to extend influence or power or economic uh, interests, but to establish territorial empire. And that's what all three of the Axis states wanted to do. And so the response, of course, is that, you know, states begin to rearm in reaction to that. Um, There's a growing ideological gulf between the the new imperial states Mm -hmm. and the old and so on. But the, 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 the driving force behind that really is the decision to embark on a program of territorial imperialism in the 1930s. Yeah, and speaking of that ideological conflict, uh, we're seeing in this period uh, the Axis uh, the Axis powers um, are going to share this uh, this growing commitment to uh, to state planning um, and a hostility to the uh, to the Western ideal or model of liberal capitalism and then and the values the western values that sustain that model absolutely yeah i mean even in germany which was just part of the western world in yeah. the, the the nationalist response is to reject uh western cosmopolitanism western liberalism and so on western capitalism because they blame the west for what's happened to them you know mm-hmm. to blame the west for inhibiting what they want to do um, and so they, they assert very different values to the values of the West. Um, and, um, uh, uh, and that opens up uh, this gulf in ideas between the two sides. A gulf that becomes wider still when the Soviet Union and the United States enter the war, of course, mm-hmm. because they have an ideological view that's uh, you know, entirely out of uh, temper with what the Axis are trying to achieve, particularly the United States, where you know, Roosevelt has to drag the United States or the population of the United States into the idea that this is a war for democracy, a war for freedom, a war uh, against uh, uh, against a racist empire. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the ideology then becomes, you know, fixed so that you can see the contest in those terms. Yeah, and uh, getting uh, sort of back to Europe and... Uh, with the, the beginning, or what was normally understood as the beginning of the war, with uh, the war in Poland, uh, you write that it, uh, the war in Poland can be better understood as sort of the the last stage in this uh, this mostly uncontested movement to to found these territorial empires in the 30s, rather than that conventional view that sees it as the opening of the Second World War. And you write that uh, you write that you believe Hitler probably didn't want a general war. In the fall of 1939, or I guess it was still the summer of 1939, um, just a localized one to support the expansion of of living space of Lebensraum in the east, and that the the Second World War really was a result of decisions taken in Paris and London, and not in, not in Berlin. Yeah, I mean, Hitler hoped that he could achieve the conquest of Poland without intervention and that they would then begin to round out that kind of central European area 
imperial area you had in mind. But um, that raised another difficult problem, of course. You, you would then have a common frontier with the Soviet Union. And at the back mm -hmm. of Hitler's mind is that at some point, perhaps in the not-too-distant future, there's going to be a crisis with the Soviet Union and possibility of extending mm -hmm. Lebensraum even further. But what, you know, what spoilt that calculation that the British government saying, hang on, no, we're not going to take any more. We're going to declare war on you and you're going to have to have a war in the West whether you like it or not. Mm -hmm. um, and Hitler has to rise to that challenge. But... You know, essentially, it's the British and French saying, that's enough, you, know, you can't go any further. Yeah, uh, I sort of off topic, but um, I always sort of wondered about this. It's a little different here. I mean, how we view the war um, in the United States, uh, just because of when we entered it and the reasons we entered it. You know, we entered the war late 1941. Um, uh, Hitler declares war on us. <laughs> uh, mm. Big mistake. But uh, so in the United States, well, I'm sure in Britain, too, uh, you know, the war is still um, sort of remembered as the uh, uh, maybe the greatest moment in both of our histories, you know, uh, your finest hour, uh, as, as Churchill would say. But is there any sense that um, in Britain, I mean, because you entered the war in 1939, basically um, to protect Poland? And then, uh, so you go to war with Nazi Germany over Poland, and then, uh, but at the end of the war, basically see Poland uh, gobbled up by the Soviet Union and become a, you know, a, a, a puppet uh, satellite of the Soviet Union. Is there any sort of, uh, or more recently, has there been any sort of um, tampering down on, um, on Britain's uh, achievement? In the Second World War, I mean, is it is it sort of like well, I mean, yeah, we won, but we didn't, uh, you know, <laughs> we sort of sold the poles out. I I mean, you know, circumstances on the ground, mm. it, you know, sort of overtook whatever. I mean, mm. you know, it's hard to remove the Red Army from from. Yeah, I mean, I didn't. That, no, no, I, mean, I didn't. That really worried the British public at the time or since. Uh, I mean, they were much more concerned about saving themselves. Yeah, this became a war between great powers. Um, and a British view of of, the, of Poland, the Polish problem, was a, on the whole a rather cynical one. Um, and little effort was made, in fact, to rescue Poland at the end of the Second World War. Uh, but that's not what the British public focuses on. They focus mm -hmm. on the defeat of Hitler. That was essential. That otherwise, you know, that we'd, we'd all be under the German heel. And of course, in a sense, that's true. I mean, mm -hmm. it's good that the, the the German imperial project was defeated. Um, whereas in America, of course, there's an entirely different view. I mean, Poland doesn't feature a great deal. What does feature is that that, uh, that Japan could be defeated, um, and uh, well, if possible, uh, a new national China created. Um, the, the Chinese question, of course, uh, turned sour with the rise of Mao Zedong and Chinese communism. Mm -hmm. But, but I think I think even now, you know, for the American public, when you think about the Second World War, they're really thinking about you know, defeating yeah. Japan before you think about what's happening in Europe. Yeah, I mean, it just I feel like there's been um, uh, I don't know, sort of a reappraisal. It seems like people are sort of more sour on the end of World War Two now. It's like, well, we defeated, uh, we, we liberated. Europe from one totalitarian yeah. <laughs> nightmare yeah, yeah, state, and yeah. and in the end of the war, half of the continent is still under the the boot heel of another totalitarian yeah. uh, nightmare state. So, um, 
I don't know, just it seems like in the last few years there have been sort of uh, people have been less uh, 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 bullish on the end of the of the second world. No, no, War, indeed, yeah. both countries. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean the end of the war was a very ambiguous one. Mm. The crisis of you know the old empires and so on, the rise of communism, um, and of course for many people in Europe to the, the the rise of American power. You mm. know, they were also rather distrustful of that. Mm. Yeah. Um, so the war, you know, doesn't end neatly and cleanly. No war does, really. True. All right. Uh, well, back uh, to the beginning of the war, uh, <laughs> before the war. Um, talk about appeasement. And uh, you write that uh, appeasement, uh, it's, a, it's a misleading description of, of British foreign strategy in the 1930s and French foreign strategy. Uh, you write that... Uh, uh, Deterrence and containment; those would be better descriptors, in your opinion. Could you mm. talk a little bit about that? Why you why you say so? Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, appeasement was an unfortunate word, and Chamberlain himself said he wished he had never used it, um, because it became the stick to beat him, um, all his political opponents, and so on. Um, but what I argue in the book is that if you look, you know, once it, once they identify what the nature of the problem is, and the problem's a big one because they're threatened in the Mediterranean, they're threatened in the, in, the, in East Asia, they're threatened in Europe. How do you balance all these threats and uh, remain a credible power? Um, and so they do make a number of concessions, but they see those as timely concessions which might contain you know, any ambitions that the Axis powers might harbour. But at the same time, you know, both states begin a program of extensive rearmament, peacetime rearmament, um, much to, to a much higher level than they, they had before 1914. And there are times when they come close to confronting the Axis violently too. And before the Munich conference, when Chamberlain explains to Hitler that you know if he marches into Poland, into Czechoslovakia unilaterally, uh, then that will trigger war. Uh, they come close to war with Japan and China on a number of occasions. Um, they don't in the end. They latch on to Poland almost by accident as the key issue with which they will confront Hitler. Um, but uh, that's what they that's what they do. They say to Hitler, you know, you go another step further um, and there will be war. So I think we, we need to to balance this this view of, you know, spineless appeasing democracies, which is a popular view still, I think, with the reality of the problems they faced and the way they confronted them. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're at the defeat of France uh, by Germany in 1940, call that the, uh, the critical turning point in the war. Mm. And I think, uh, at least here in the United States, it, they, uh, or especially now, you know, 70 years, almost 80 years after the conflict, uh, people don't really get how shocking it was that uh, that Germany defeated France so quickly and so mm. swiftly. Mm. Um, how uh, how did how did uh, why do you call uh, that the critical turning point And how, like I said, how did that happen? And how did it happen so fast? Well, it, I mean, it is a critical turning point because if France and Britain had been able to contain German forces in the West, uh, perhaps you know some kind of repeat of the First World War, you know, long trenches, etc., etc., uh, then the, the war might well have had a, a very different outcome. Um, the rapid defeat of France 
simply did make Germany, you know, the premier power in Europe, able to dominate the uh, continent um, more or less at, at will. Um, and it, it pushed Britain into um, you know, a, a defensive position, which looked extremely vulnerable in 1940. So, so I mean, it is a, a you know a really important turning point, and it happens really because not because the French and the British are underprepared, mm -hmm. Britain is not prepared to help the French as much as they would have liked, but also because the, you know, the military strategy adopted by the French armed forces. Uh, facing the German threat in 1940 was you know, completely incompetent. Um, I mean, you know, German military imagination, uh, which took a huge risk of, of pushing tanks through the Ardennes forest to cut the British and the French off, uh, was risky. But it, you know, in, in war you have to take risks. But the the French strategy was, uh, you know, when you look back at it now, really quite hard to fathom. Mm. Um, and it contributed to an extraordinarily rapid defeat. So rapid, of course, that Hitler was then persuaded that, that the Soviet Union, which he regarded as more you know, corrupt and militarily feeble than France, uh, would fall in four weeks as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of people don't think of it, but uh, France had more tanks um, than Germany mm. did at the start of the invasion. And didn't France have the, like, the largest army on Earth uh, in 1940? Uh, or, well, the Soviet Union had the largest or, army. Oh, or right um, after, or after the Soviet Union did it. Uh, but they, had, but they, they had a very large army, mm -hmm. um, you know, like they had in 1914, and it was well trained and uh, reasonably well armed. Um, but what they didn't have was a high command that could think operationally and strategically with enough imagination. Mm -hmm. Do you think they could they um, were they overly defeatist? Could the could the do you think in your mind the French could have held on longer against the against the Germans, uh, uh, made the war more, the, the fight for France a little bit more bloody instead of signing the armistice that quickly? Do you think they could have... Uh, no, there was no way they could. They could I mean, they recognized that they were defeated in the field uh, quite early on, actually. Um, and so, I mean, they could have carried on fighting, but at great cost, you know, pointlessly, because they would not have won. Mm -hmm. um, no, the, the critical thing was the first two weeks, you know, and the, yeah. the Germans unhinge the whole Allied front uh, by the the drive through the Arden forest and the drive towards the channel ports. Mm. All right. Uh, well, we've already gone. I mean, God, we could go over the whole course of the, the war on the battlefield, but we've already gone like half an hour. So I, I guess I'd want to switch to the uh, the more thematic chapters of the book, okay. the final chapters. Um, let's start with uh, uh, mobilization. And uh, the Second World War, right, is, it's this unique moment in history uh, where the combatant powers were able to assemble and arm these very large, vast armies with, uh, with weapons that, uh, of I guess, comparative simplicity and supreme lethality uh, that could be manufactured on a, on a tremendous scale and, and deployed by... Uh, and, and used by conscripts of limited skill and limited education. Um, so that's something that uh, you say is unique to that period, something we probably uh, obviously couldn't do today or, or couldn't have been done, uh, you know, in 1914, for, uh, for example. Mm. Mm. No, I mean, I, it couldn't, I think, be done today because, you know, modern weapons are very difficult to reproduce in large quantities and at speed. Um 
they, they learned a lot from the First World War. And I think if you see mobilization in the Second World War, all the countries involved you know, planned it, thought about it, and so on. And they based their thinking, of course, on what had happened in the First World War. So mm-hmm. it was a sense in which the populations were colluded with the governments, you know, because when war broke out, they thought war was going to be total war, they would have to make sacrifices, uh, they expected mass mobilization, um, and that's what they got. I mean, in effect, of course, you know, a, a more limited mobilization uh, with a high-tech armed forces might well have achieved more mm. uh, than conscript armies, you know, armed with conventional weapons uh, but that's not what they thought everybody thought that mass mobilization these were societies at war, whole societies at war, you need to mobilize uh, industrial resources you need to mobilize the finances of the population and you need to mobilize the population for work and fighting um, it, it is an extraordinary moment and I, 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 I detail quite a lot in the book I think the, the sheer statistical um uh, extraordinary statistical picture this involves, you know, where you know, at some point, you know, two thirds of GMP, if you think of it, two thirds of GMP is being devoted to the fighting, you know, to fighting the war. That's an extraordinary statistic. When you think now uh, that modern Western states devote two to four percent, perhaps, to the military. Yeah, and on the sort of that same note, uh, uh, mobilization, uh, military output. Uh, on the largest possible scale was uh, was an indispensable uh, precondition uh, for using it successfully, which um, sort of makes it odd that all three Axis powers decided they would go to war with the United States, mm. uh, you know, with its sort mm. of unrivaled economic power and industrial yeah. power. Uh, but yeah. Uh, t- yeah, talk a little bit about that for a second, if you could. Well, one would like to say the Axis powers tried their best, but they didn't in Italy because <laughs> of low level of mobilization. The Japanese economy was just too small mm. um, and, you know, suffered from a whole lot of resource difficulties. The Germans were the main threat, you know, had a very large economy, uh, a high level of technical aptitude, very large um, machine industry um, and access to the resources of most of Europe. They could have made much more of their economic war effort than they did. They could have produced many more weapons much sooner. Um, And that would have made the task of defeating Germany much more difficult. Mm. Yeah, how much uh, do you think that the the brain drain from Germany of all the uh, um, uh, Jewish professionals that left the country in the 30s, how much uh, of that do you think had an impact on, uh, on Germany's performance in the war? No, I don't think it had a great impact. Uh, I mean, Germany had an extraordinary depth of scientific engineering and technical skill. Um, I mean, only to be compared, I think, perhaps to the United States. And uh, you might say that in some areas they lost critical scientists, but you know, one thing Germany did do in the Second World War was to invent a great deal um, and to think about the engineering of the future. In fact, that was part of their problem. They were always trying to improve, uh, always trying to double guess you know, what, what the best weapons of the future would be, mm-hmm. instead of focusing, as the Soviet Union and the United States did, on producing large numbers of very of robust, easily uh, produced weapons which were effective enough on the battlefield. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, the Tiger the Tiger II tank or something like that yeah. was, you know... Uh, 
uh, leaps and bounds a better tank than the than the Sherman, but <laughs> but the but the Sherman would always uh, you know if you, when you turn the keys in the ignition the Sherman would always start and the Sherman would always yeah. run, yeah, which yeah. is not the case with the with the Tiger. Uh, but uh, on that note too, fighting the war, you uh, you read about the uh, how, how well how did the extent to which the uh, the combatants learn to develop uh, and exploit a range of uh, what you call force multipliers. Uh, mm. determine uh, the winners on the battlefield. And there's a, like four of these, I believe, uh, the development of of these force multipliers. So one is the, the development of, mm. of mechanized warfare and, uh, and tactical aviation, ground support aviation. Uh, the second is the, the revolution we see in amphibious warfare. Uh, the third is the uh, evolution and application of electronic warfare. So... Uh, radio, radar, sonar, that sort of thing. And then the fourth um, is uh, in the the scope of intelligence and counterintelligence operations and the, the, these mm. complex deception operations. Mm. Well, all four, I think, were, were... I mean, there are other things you could have, I could have talked about in the book, I think, as well. Mm. Um, and, you know, we should never underestimate artillery, as we can see in Ukraine today. Um, but these were all what I call force multipliers, were things which actually gave the Allies advantages over the Axis. And part of the reason, I think, is simply the early Axis victories lulled them into a state of uh, force security, I think, the idea that they didn't have to do too much, because clearly they were better at what they did than the, uh, than the Allies. And until late 42, perhaps even mid-43, that was generally true. Um, but for the Allies, they had no choice. They had plenty of time because they couldn't be invaded easily by the Axis states. So they had plenty of time to work out how to fight better, in other words, how to organize your armed forces better and manage your armed forces better, but also how to focus on the things that would matter in terms of battlefield performance, um, either either <coughs> on land or at sea or in the air. Radar, I think, probably of all those, was one of the most critical. Um, and one which the Axis states failed to develop fully enough. Yeah, I was sort of shocked uh, to learn that, uh, for example, that a lot of the um, the aircraft uh, that the Red Army, uh, or excuse me, the Red Air Force uh, had at the beginning of the war, uh, <laughs> few, uh, very little of those aircraft had radio. Radios no. in the aircraft yeah. <laughs> couldn't communicate. That was just sort of uh, shocking to me that uh, yeah, yes. you know that yeah. no one thought like, hey, maybe we should put radios in these things. Yes. Well, they learned. Yeah, yeah, but they learned the hard way. I mean, that's the. Uh, yeah. uh, but uh, uh, the other thing I was shocked at, just sort of off topic too, uh, there's a little tidbit in your book that the um, the average lifespan of the T-34 uh, tank, the the Russian tank, the Soviet tank, mm. uh, which is sort of Sort of universally seen as the you know pound for pound mm. the best tank in the mm. in the war the mm. medium tank, the average lifespan of of a T thirty four was just two or three days. I mean that was yeah. uh, shocking to me yeah. that uh, that basically yeah. uh, I'm 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 very glad I was not a, a Russian uh, tanker in the on, on the Eastern Front. Yeah, yeah. yeah. incredible. Yeah. Um, so yeah, moving on a little bit uh, back to the. Uh, beginning of the war, the sort of propaganda and how that uh, played an effect. What was uh, um, what were the justifications that the 
the Axis powers uh, favored, but the, the propagandists and the Axis states favored for uh, for the war. What were the the justifications that they thought were the most uh, uh, compelling? Yeah, I mean, their justification is always that, uh, that other powers were to blame. Um, that, you know, they've been forced to do what they did. Um, in the Hitler case, of course, there was this bizarre idea of a Jewish conspiracy. There was a world Jewish conspiracy based in Moscow, in Washington, in London, and that had impelled Britain and later on the United States to, to engage in war. Um, and to try to stifle Germany's rightful uh, claim to empire. Um, the Japanese too had a conspiracy theory that somehow the white races were out to, you know, to strangle Japan's uh, ambitions in Asia, um, and that it was you know, the fault of the United States and the British and French empires, and so not of Japan, uh, that they were forced to, uh, to, to go to war. In fact, it's a little bit like the, the propaganda currently being used in Russia, in Putin's Russia, where you, you operate within a kind of parallel universe. Mm. In fact, you know, it's Germany, Japan, and Italy, the aggressors, but somehow they manage to persuade their population that it's the other states to blame, the other states are the aggressors, and they're defending themselves, uh, you know, against, you know, American ambition in the Pacific or against British and French um, uh, ambitions in Europe. Um, and turning it on its head meant that you could persuade your populations that you know you really were fighting a war, a just war of defense. Yeah. Uh, again, sort of on a side topic, uh, since you brought up Ukraine, um, it's sort of <laughs> I, I'm not the the only one who's noticed this uh, or commented on it, but uh, the parallels between um, the Soviet Union's invasion of Finland in the Winter War in 1939 and uh, mm. Russia's invasion of uh, Ukraine, uh, which seems to almost be following this mm. <laughs> sort of the same script yes. where where the Russians, yeah. uh, you know, they start off uh, a little overconfident. Uh, the military or their army is not uh, and does not perform <laughs> very well. Yeah. It's not organized very well. Uh, I mean, for a lot of reasons. Um, by a you know uh, by a much smaller force, a much pluckier, mm. uh, much more motivated force. Uh, but then after the initial, um, well, I guess this is the same too for Barbarossa and the the Eastern mm. Front. That you know after these really poor uh, performances, the 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 Russians seem to learn how to uh, yeah. shrug those off and figure out a way to. Yeah. Uh, sort of grind down their opponents. Do you think? Um, yeah. Do you think that's what? Uh, in your opinion, do you think that's probably what's going to happen in Ukraine? That no, oh, in Ukraine, I mean, the Russians will achieve what they want because there's yeah. no way they can be stopped. Uh, uh, as with Finland, you know, they were able to impose on Finland a, a final peace settlement in Russia's favor, and that's what will happen sadly in in, in Ukraine. Uh, they don't deserve it, as mm. you all know. Um, but um, I mean, in some ways, you know, it, it, it would be better for Ukraine now to accept that reality and, and try and extract itself from the war with the minimum of damage. Um, but I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, it seems, um, especially since news, the news cycle sort of shifted to other things here in the United States. And I, I don't know how it's going over uh, across the pond over in Europe and in, and in Britain. Uh but I think the, the sort of like, uh, as you said, the, the Soviet or Soviet, <laughs> the Russian triumph in Ukraine is probably inevitable at this point. And I think a lot of people, uh, just based on the early successes of the Ukrainians, they uh, 
people who are not really paying attention to this sort of thing when uh, when that uh, when that shoe falls um, they're going to be surprised that mm-hmm. uh, that Ukraine has actually lost this conflict mm. Mm. do you think so yeah well I mean they're going to have to be realistic about it um, I mean, you know, the Russians could have benefited a little bit from, you know, reading Blood and Ruins, probably. <laughs> Some work out, you know, how difficult Blitzkrieg is across Ukraine. Yeah. Um, uh, and it would be good if they'd thought twice about it. But, uh, you know, they will grind Ukraine down and uh, achieve more or less what they want. I think the problem for the West and you know, all of us is, you know, where do Putin's ambitions stop? Um, you know, it's hard to double-guess. Just as if it's hard to double guess Hitler's. If um, do you think uh, if Putin called NATO's bluff and rolled into the Baltic states, say, do you think uh, do you really think NATO would uh, go to war <laughs> with, with Russia over over say Lithuania or you know Estonia and uh, Latvia? Oh yeah, absolutely. Do you think so? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, but, but that's why Putin isn't going to do it. Yes. Yeah. All right. Let's hope so. Um, all right, back to the book. Um, you talk a little bit about the uh, civilian involvement uh, in the war and this concept of total war, but uh, talk really talk about this unprecedented scale of civilian involvement and, and civilian suffering that the war inflicted. Mm. Well, I mean, civilian suffering in the war is, is monumental. It's monumental particularly in Asia, uh, in China, where estimated 90 odd million refugees, um, uh, millions of dead. In Russia too, millions of dead, 16 million dead civilians and so on. Um, In the areas they occupy in Asia and Africa and and, and in Europe, they treat the civilian population appallingly. Um, So yes, there's, you know, civilian costs are are colossal. they're not shared, one needs to add, by the Western powers, of course, because, sure. you know, Britain has um, 60,000 deaths from bombing over the course of the war. The United States loses very few civilians during the course of the war. You know, the, the, the scale of suffering uh, by civilians uh, is quite hard to grasp, but it's confined uh, in the large part to the war in Asia and the war in Eastern Europe. Mm. Yeah, the the bloodlands. Yeah, the bloodlands. Um, how were the uh, the psychological and the emotional consequences for uh, for both uh, the military and for civilians? How were they uh, understood and, and treated by uh, by the combatant nations? Well, one of, one of the things I wanted to talk about in this book, and there's a whole chapter on what I call the emotional geography of war, mm-hmm. uh, is it's you know it's something which is, is scarcely talked about in general history of the Second World War. But I wanted to explore first of all, you know, how do you keep ordinary civilians fighting, often extraordinary bloody conflicts, over a long time? How do they cope psychologically with with what's going on? But then also think more about civilians. How do they cope with the threat of uh, of bombing or you know, the problems of occupation and so on? Um, for the soldiers, uh, the striking thing uh, it, it, for Western armies is how many of them were psychiatric casualties. Twenty-five uh, percent of uh, American 
soldiers who entered North Africa um, in other theatres too, exceptionally high percentage of psychiatric casualties, many of whom could not be returned effectively to, to combat. And that, to me, raised very interesting questions about, you know, how does the other 75% cope? Um, now, the standard answer has always been that they cope because they're, you know, they're small units, they support each other. Um, and the evidence suggests in most armies, also Axis armies, that that was a very important uh, point that, you know, small units, a little platoon, a little company and so on, you know, an aircraft crew and so on, they bind together and they support each other and they, they find ways of coping. Uh, so in that sense, morale seems to be sustained as much from below as it's sustained from above by, you know, propaganda, you know, et cetera, et cetera, from the, the army leadership. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a, an interesting question to confront because in Japan and in Germany and in the Soviet Union, you were not, not really allowed to be a psychiatric casualty. Mm -hmm. um, it was understood that people you know, would have a temporary lapse after being subjected to heavy bombardment, for example, and so they were often allowed to come back to a medical center a little way behind the front line and so on, where they'd be given you know, cups of tea and, uh, and a good talking to, and then go back again. Um, but you know, on the whole, they were not supposed to break down and that meant, of course, that many people carried their trauma with them. Uh, they died in many cases in very large numbers. Mm. Uh, I mean, so we don't know, you know how they cope psychologically because the, the, the raw material is, is, is disappeared. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, you know, even uh, people here in the States uh, who you know, had the, were fortunate to know a World War II veteran. Uh, uh, it's funny how they like you said sort of carried the trauma with them uh i mm. remember when my my great uncle was still alive one of my great uncles uh uh my great uncle served in europe and uh he was uh wounded at the battle of the bulge and won a, a bronze star but i remember uh, a few years before he died he uh, came down and he was uh, staying with my grandparents uh, for like a few months and we were just all having dinner, and we were talking to him about the uh, about the war and his uh, experience. And it was funny how he, or maybe not funny, but I mean, it was interesting how he would talk a lot about, or he would talk about different things in like the war years and his non-combat experience at that time. But mm. to get him, he would not really say anything <laughs> about uh, the actual combat experience mm. uh, himself. Mm. Um, he did have, I think he said he had a recurring dream after the war uh, that um, that either I think it was either he or somebody had uh, forgotten their mortar and they had to go back and get their the, the mortar. And so he had this recurring dream about having to go back and get this mortar, but he, but he mm. never really he never really opened up about like the combat experience. Yeah, but yeah. uh, true right across the veteran generation, very unusual to talk a lot about it. Yeah. People tend to talk about it as they do at all late in life, mm. when you know they they feel that you know, now is the time before the end that you know they can start talking about these things. But in many cases, they take the the experience of the grave, they don't want to talk about it. Um, and that, you know, is a reminder to us about how traumatic war is, what war yeah. does. It messes up the people who are involved in it, you know, it leaves scars, mental mm -hmm. scars, 
Um, now we're used to it after Vietnam and so on, sure. given it names and so on. But in 1945, there was no name for it. People had to bear their scars, their psychological scars, uh, long after the war, and nobody really cared about it. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's just sort of interesting how that generation sort of kept everything more yeah. um, bottled up. But uh, mm. I mean, you wouldn't know. I mean, he was a he was a high school principal. He was a basketball coach. I mean, otherwise, he's a pillar of his community. You wouldn't really know um, mm. that, that he had these uh, this sort of you know trauma mm. from the war. Um, but it. But that seems sort of uh, par for the course. That, uh, or maybe yeah. it's just we just don't hear about uh, well, no, the people, bad stuff. I mean, you know, veterans tend to talk to other veterans. Yeah, you know, they'll have veteran meetings and dinners and so on. And then they will start to swap stories and so on. But those are very private occasions. You know, it's yeah. not it's not the kind of place an historian would turn up. Mm. All right. Uh, well, well, we've already gone almost an hour. So uh, wrapping up a little bit. So uh, again, you talked about this little. A little bit at the beginning of our chat, but I just want to uh, reinforce this: that this, uh, um, that the the end of the imperial project, the uh, the unraveling of the empires uh, due to the war, uh, this is the context that's going to shape the new, the sort of the new order, the new internationalism, and and the emerging Cold War. It is, yeah. I mean, the important thing, I think, in 45, the big change, in my view, is that it, it's the end of old-fashioned empire. Uh, I mean, we can talk about Soviet empire, American empire, and so on, but I'm talking really about this, this old-fashioned idea of empire. Um, and it's replaced by the nation-state. Um, now, many people see these big changes in geopolitics occurring after the First World War, but to me, the Second World War is the critical thing. Uh, the founding of the United Nations, the establishment of a body of international law related to conflict, uh, the Genocide Convention, mm-hmm. uh, all of these things uh, create a, a, an entirely different geopolitical order after 1945. The Cold War, of course, emerges out of 1945 as well, where you get the two superpowers who, you know, in the end, decided the outcome of the conflict uh, facing each other. Um, but they don't face each other in the same way as the powers before 1939. You know, this is not an age of new empire building, new territorial empire building. Mm-hmm. This is an age of the nation state. And you know, by the time you know, I finished writing the book, there were nearly 200 nation states represented yeah. in the United Nations. Do you think uh, the uh, development of nuclear weapons, do you think that kept us away from a third world war do you think that i mean if uh you know if there's no nukes on the table that a third world war is likely between the nato and the and the warsaw pact states um well it certainly helped uh, during the cold war i mean historians not very good at predicting the immediate future <laughs> and so i hesitate to predict it but i, <laughs> I would be very surprised if we get world war three now you can invite me back in a year's time and find i'm wrong but i hope yeah. not yeah. Okay. Great. All right. Well. Um, well, like I said, we're getting uh, pretty close to the end here. So, uh, final question. It's one I ask uh, pretty much everybody that comes on the podcast. Uh, so, uh, what uh, what would you like the audience to get out of this book? What's the What's the one thing you'd want them to take away from reading it? Well, I suppose it's. Uh, I mean, the one thing I would like them to take away from it is is a strong sense. Uh, making war, particularly making war uh, for territorial empire, 
is something we put behind us. Uh, you know, we live in a dangerous age now, but um, 1945 brought to an end four or five hundred years of violence and global expansion. Um, and I hope people take away from my book the, the view that, you know, it's good that it's ended. Great. Okay. Well, uh, before we go, is there uh, anything else you uh, want to plug? Any other appearances coming up? Any uh, any uh, uh, new work on the horizon? Anything like that? Well, I'm writing a book called Why War? Because um, I wanted to get away from just the Second World War. And so I'm, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm looking at the way in which the, the, the many human sciences have tried to explain war and why it occurs and uh, I'm enjoying that it's very different from what I've done on the Second World War yeah all right cool yeah well uh, uh, there's so much in this book I mean I basically had almost like uh, half a legal pad (laughs) with uh, notes that I took uh, reading the book and I had to you know sort of uh, narrow that all down to about like an hour's worth of questions and uh uh, so um, I think I did that pretty, <laughs> pretty well considering yeah. all the stuff yeah. I wanted to do uh, but I just uh, this book is uh, I just wanted to say to the audience it's a uh, uh, tremendous uh, tremendous book like I said uh, uh, one uh, reviewer uh, I think it was John Darwin maybe in the, the Times mm. Literary Supplement I think he called it your magnum opus mm. and uh not to denigrate any of your other books because, uh, you know, I've read Russia's War, I've read uh, The Dictators, uh, um, I've read uh, uh, the, your last book, uh, um, uh, The Bombers That's and the Bombed, uh, and they're all wonderful books, but this is a, a truly uh, 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 remarkable uh, work of scholarship and a work of history, and uh, I really appreciate you coming, uh, taking the time because I know it's late there, getting late there in Italy. <laughs> so I appreciate you taking the time to, to, to come on and, and to discuss the book with me. Okay, thank you. All right, thank you very much. And again, uh, the book is Blood and Ruins, The Last Imperial War, 1931 to 1945. And the author is Professor Richard Overy. And uh, again, if you like this podcast, please uh, leave us a five-star review and share with your friends. And if you have books you'd like to discuss with us on the podcast, you can reach out to me at uh, tbenson.heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, uh, you can just go to heartland.org. And uh, we do have our uh, our Twitter account for the uh, for the podcast now, so you can reach out to us there if you have any questions or comments or you know want to give us a follow. Uh, you can reach us there at uh, illbooks at ill books. So check that out. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. So thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. Take care. Hi, Robbie. Hi, hi, mom. Love you both. Bye, bye. <laughs>